Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is our Thursday broadcast. Usually it's Deep State Radio live from New York City, but I happen to be in sunny Palo Alto, California. Uh, And so we are doing this uh, episode remotely where I'm here and in New York, our our, uh, regular friend and colleague in all of this. We have Ryan Goodman, who's the co-editor in chief of Just Security and a professor at NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan. Hi, thanks for having me back. Uh, Well, it's always good to have you here. And uh, we have joining us also uh, Greg Sargent of The Washington Post, who's one of the most prolific and thoughtful commentators at the Washington Post. Hi, Greg. Hi, thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on. And at some point soon, we trust we're going to have with us Katie Fang, uh, an attorney and prosecutor from Florida. She has been in a uh, mediation this afternoon, and that was supposed to end an hour ago, so apparently it was a tough mediation, but she will join us when she uh, can. Um, let me start, and I would just want to go through a couple of things that you guys started with, and I'm going to go to each of you the question about um, what you started with, what, what you've written recently, and then uh, we'll 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 open it up from there. But um, Ryan, one of the things that you did at Just Security just a couple of days ago that I thought was kind of interesting was you did a side by side comparison of the statement of Robert Mueller versus the statements of uh, uh, Attorney General Barr uh, and revealed uh, as clearly as possible and more clearly than I think others have done, the stark differences between the two. And I was wondering if you might, uh, first of all, I encourage everybody to go to Just Security as we do every week, but but uh, I was wondering if you might summarize what the big takeaways from you there were. Sure. I think um, the big takeaways are if you look very closely at what uh, Attorney General Barr has said, including in congressional testimony, and then match it up with what Mueller said when he finally made his public statement, it con- I think it's very damning in terms of it demonstrates at a minimum a great deal of public deception on the part of the Attorney General in the way that he has represented both what's in the report and also how he has represented the authority of uh, Mueller to, for example, bring an indictment. And it's so much of a contrast with what Mueller actually said when he finally spoke that it even raises for me the question of whether Mueller was trying to directly uh, correct the record from the way in which Barr has controlled the narrative. and I, you know, I suppose one other thing to be said is that in doing the exercise of going back and looking at every single thing that Barr has said since the time of that he was received the Mueller report till Mueller's statement, it also showed, uh, at least for me, ways in which Barr has 
uh, tactically try to maneuver this. So you can even see over time he had first tried to suggest that Mueller did actually have the authority to indict a sitting president, then probably realized that that was a bad argument and then has shifted over time to a different kind of argument. So it's also just demonstrating uh, his tactical moves as well. Um, I read it and and what struck me was that Barr was being systematically disingenuous. Agreed. Um, it, I, 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 don't, I don't know, Greg, did you by any chance see this thing that Ryan did? I did, and, and I'd like to add something if I could. Um, of course. You know, you know I, I think one thing that really the media blew very horribly on Mueller's appearance uh, when he closed the investigation was to treat it as not news because he was more or less repeating, you know, some of the things in the report. I, I mean, there were plenty of stories on it, but there was also a great deal of Twitter commentary from quote unquote savvy reporters who were saying there's not that much new here. And <clears throat> what I think people really missed and, and what I think Ryan really got at is, is that we should have seen the Mueller statement in a context, a context in which the, um, the attorney general has been spinning wildly for Trump for weeks. And so for, for Robert Mueller to step forward and emphasize the particular things that he did um, was an effort to reset the conversation um, in response to what Barr said. And so, yes, some of the stuff he repeated was uh, from the report, but the mere fact of making the particular choices that he did to emphasize very key facts about obstruction and to about the what went into the decision not to charge must be seen as an effort to push back on Barr. Well, I think that's you know I think that that's clearly right. One of the things that one has to observe about Barr or about Mueller uh, is that neither one of them makes statements accidentally. It's not like Trump tweeting out that the moon and Mars were part of the same thing. <laughs> Um, uh, which he did today, um, uh, or, or you know, that kind of stuff that he does every day, where there's no thought that 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 goes into it. Um, and that's, you know, I, I I think that gets me to a, a second question, and I address this to Greg, and then do the follow up to Ryan, and then want to connect these two. But Greg, you wrote a piece about. Um, the nature of, of sort of disinformation in the age of Trump, and you picked up on um, uh, this this Pelosi comment controversy. You want to sort of recap that very briefly because I want to connect these two together. Sure. Well, what I wrote today is that uh, there's still a, a really baffling tendency by many in the press to treat Trump's nonstop lying as really kind of a conventional form of political dishonesty. When I think if you look at the totality of the, of the lying and the constant repetition of it and the audacity of it um, and the joining in with it by his massive propaganda network in the media um, in terms of Fox News and some Wall Street Journal types and so forth, you have to see it as something new and different, kind of a, a form of disinformation that, that I don't think we're really accustomed to dealing with. And what I did was I looked at 
Trump's uh, Fox interview in response to Pelosi and also Sean Hannity's kind of echoing of many of the main themes of it. And essentially, I, what I concluded was that you can't watch those interviews and, and, and come away not understanding that this is really something very un- it's not conventional political dishonesty. It's it's really disinformation. It's it's an effort to resolutely set set out a very alternate version of events that has nothing whatsoever in common with the known facts. And I think the press is not in some fundamental way still not dealing with this problem. Well, you used a term in the column um, that comes up a lot on our podcast, which is constitutional rot. You refer to a, a, an academic perspective on that. Rosa Brooks regularly brings up this idea of constitutional rot. Um, but I guess my my point there is that you see something deeper in this than just lies and propaganda. Right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so serious political theorists are, are really treating this like a real thing. So it's not just, you know, it's not just us Twitter people throwing around the word disinformation and propaganda for fun. Um, you know, so Jack Balkin at Yale wrote a piece, an essay about constitutional rot. And, and one key thing that he pointed to as something that he sees as a sign of our deterioration is the the what he called the propaganda network that has developed behind Trump. And he was very clear in calling it that and talked about that propaganda as something that is really about deliberately um, extinguishing the possibility of shared reality and reasoned discourse. And he sees that as a symptom or a part and parcel of the constitutional rot that he, he writes about. And I think it's hard to look at what Trump is doing and what some of his media allies are doing and not conclude that that's exactly, whether it's by instinct or design, I don't know. But there's clearly something different about what these guys are doing. It's not conventional. It, it is an effort to essentially make um, public deliberation harder and, and, and to, to, create, to erode the foundations for it and make shared realities as the basis for political deliberation um, harder to come by. So Ryan, what strikes me um, as interesting in, in, in the two um, pieces and in this concept is that they're actually connected, even if they don't seem to be, in the sense that um, we're literally sort of suffering from a national form of schizophrenia or 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 perhaps um, uh, another way to put it is just par- paralyzing cognitive dissonance because there are two sides offering out two completely alternative stories. And we, we talk about that um, and they go to their echo chambers. And that's one thing, you know, it's one thing if that's the political debate. But it now seems to being translated into a legal consequence where essentially one side is saying there's a series of outrages here and we're going to use the system in order to investigate them. Um, and the other side is saying they're not outrageous, and so you don't have a right to use the system that way. 
and we've, we're finding com, you know, a completely alternative universe. And so long as we've got a kind of a split government, um, you end up with um, the Democrats sending subpoenas and the Republicans just ignoring the subpoenas. You have Mueller saying one thing and you have Barr saying, no, that's not really what he said. And, and you can look at the Mueller report or you can look at your document, your, your, your article, and you say, well, actually, this is what he said. But, 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 we, but we've got literally two sides selling two alternative universes and trying to institutionalize this division. It's enough to make people a little bit crazy. How are you maintaining your sanity or are you? <laughs> um, right. It's, um, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you're describing um, and that we have to think of it at the systematic level in which it's occurring. Um, so, and I do see uh, the relationship between these two pieces that you're also suggesting. So I, I think that there is also potentially a problem in the way in which the law does operate in this space, which is maybe to focus people's minds too much on questions like, well, what Barr said before Congress, was that or was that not perjury? Was that or was that not a crime? And that's not really so central the question. It's more about uh, levels of deception. And we don't have to have it be a crime. Um, we can understand it for its you know, gross abuse of power to be the Attorney General of the United States and engaging in uh, a systematic effort of public deception. So I think that maybe ch in some regards, um, understanding what we're up against is an important part of trying to get uh, solutions to this um, so that we also identify it properly, not just as like criminal perjury, but more broadly as this kind of disinformation campaign and that a stand is taken against it. Um, so I think that that's also part of the problem in the way in which even Congress has been engaging with Barr has been to speak about it in these very narrow terms, but it's it's bigger than that. I, I just, I, I guess, I, I sort of the same question to you, Greg. It, the, I, I've never experienced in my life of being in Washington for 25 years or watching these things since I was a kid, you know, faking illness to stay home and watch the Watergate hearings, which is a sign of real nerdiness. Um, <laughs> That 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 this kind of level of the clash between alternative universes, where you know you or I or Ryan or you know a thousand other people are on a regular basis saying there's something incredibly wrong here, unprecedentedly wrong here, that challenges our system and our values and puts it at risk. And there's another group of people going, not so much. And our system doesn't really seem to resolve between the two. But having said that, if, you know, you know, a, a sort of a tie goes to the Republicans in all these cases, because the Democrats don't really, you know, you can't really enforce these subpoenas and you can hold them in contempt of Congress and you know, Barr and the others will make jokes about when are you bringing your handcuffs? Um, it, it seems like, uh, you know, so long as you control 34 seats in the Senate of the United States and therefore 
the president can't be impeached and um, the Office of Legal Counsel believes that the president can't be prosecuted except by impeachment, then the president's above the law. And beyond that, his view of the universe, the one that he's selling, gets validated by all the institutions of our system. Well, I, there's something I'd like to add to the to the notion of creating those two realities. Uh, I, I don't. I, I'd argue that it's actually even worse than just saying, uh, as you characterize the Republican side as being, you know, there's not really a problem here. They've gone all the way in the other direction to say that the only crime and the only corruption that occurred was done by the investigators and Democrats, which is to say that the real crime, in quotes, was the investigation itself, right? And that's a much more dramatic embroidering of an alternate reality, if you think about it, right? And and unfortunately, the attorney general is now more or less all in with that effort. And he, he's the chief law enforcement officer. So we now have him out there. I, I thought it was a very bad sign, as all of us did, when he validated the claim, Trump's conspiracy theory, that there was spying on the campaign, using the very language that uh, created the impression of nefarious intent by law enforcement towards Trump's campaign, right? Um, and then following up by saying he's doing an investigation, and then most appallingly, something that didn't get enough attention when he essentially suggested that Democrats should fear the outcome of his internal inquiry, right? And so I agree that something's profoundly wrong here because the whole Republican Party is is all in with this effort. I mean, we saw the House Intelligence Committee, when it was controlled by Republicans, essentially weaponized into a uh, cudgel to use against law enforcement in the name of fake oversight, which was another complete reorienting um, of reality. I don't know how we get out. Of, the only solution to this that I can see is a political one, which is to win an election. Um, you know, winning back the House was half of the battle. It disarmed the bad faith efforts to use the House investigative apparatus against law enforcement. But now they can only go so far, and and I think that's a real problem. And and that's, by the way, one I think pretty reasonably powerful case on in favor of an impeachment inquiry, which is that we have to see the system used to its fullest extent to correct itself. And I don't see any other way to do that right now. Well, Ryan, you know, that seems to be the $64,000 question right now. You know, it's, it's, you know, is there a way to remedy this? And, we, you know, and back in November, we were all giddy with delight because um, the House went back to the Democrats and at least there would be some sanity and they would hold hearings and, and they would have uh, subpoena power and they would, you know, begin to do oversight. And now we're kind of heading on towards six months of the Democrats being in the House. And, you know, as it turns out, not so much. They haven't really done that much in the way of hearings. They don't have the ability really to do much with subpoenas. They tend to be polite negotiating around the subpoenas. When they do have the subpoenas, they're very reluctant to use contempt of Congress. 
conclusions. And frankly, once they do, it's unclear what that will all lead to. Uh, and even impeachment, which I agree with, uh, you know, uh, uh, implication of what Greg just said. I, you know, I personally think uh, it's required constitutionally, and it is also, uh, if the only other remaining avenue is is political, uh, a big open televised trial about the abuses and wrongs of the president uh, will have a political consequence that can't possibly be in his interest. Um, but 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 essentially, as you look at the system right now, it's very possible that Donald Trump and his team are gonna win this tug of war. That 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 even if he's elect kicked out of office, it's unlikely there's gonna be active prosecutions of a former president uh, because it'll be seen as divisive. Um, and, and, and we don't seem to be getting anywhere. This just, you know, it gets to me, you know, down to a basic thing, which, you know, Rosa talks about this a lot on the other podcast, which is that we talk about the constitution, like it was handed down on stone tablets on Mount Sinai, but it, it seems to be very deeply flawed when it comes to this kind of issue We we don't seem to be up to the crisis we're facing. Right, and, and the Constitution isn't well designed for a Senate controlled by the same party as the president um, being totally in bed with a corrupt president, because um, then the self-protection uh, through impeachment just doesn't really exist. So I, I do think that that's a serious concern. I do think that the one you know, avenue here is potentially the third branch of government, the courts, um, upholding these subpoenas and um, then uh, potentially even there being, uh, you know, civil and criminal liability for individuals who don't honor the subpoenas, especially if the courts uphold them. I think if, they, if there's a court order that says that the Congress is correct and the executive branch does not respect that court order, then I don't know who could possibly say that we aren't in a, a deep, deep constitutional crisis. And then the question is, uh, what you know, gives Congress the strongest hand going into that litigation. And I think, you know, there's the answer to that is that the best legal minds on this seem to be saying that an impeachment inquiry, uh, you haven't have to make up your mind about what the end result will be in voting for impeachment, but an impeachment inquiry will mm -hmm. give um, Congress much greater legal leverage uh, when they get to the courts to try to uphold these subpoenas. And Greg has a great interview earlier this week with uh, Representative Jamie Raskin um, on this particular is issue. And one of the points made in that piece is the idea that, you know, impeachment is the last um, defense that the Congress has. So to put that to a federal judge and say to the federal judge, um, are you really going to say that Congress doesn't have the power of impeachment to demand these kinds of materials, information, and witnesses? Right. And it's so much less likely that a judge will reject that. That that that's the that's the that's the golden moment where the judge has to say Congress has full authority to get the information it needs and as quickly as possible. If we are in an impeachment inquiry context, if we're not, then um, it's almost fighting with one hands one of one's hands behind one's back. Well, Greg, you know, one conc conclusion of this process 
is, and, and, and it'd be interesting to hear how you view this in, in the light of that conversation with Representative Raskin, but one conclusion is, if the Office of Legal Counsel's conclusion is that a president cannot be indicted while in office, impeachment isn't the last line of defense. Impeachment is the only means of upholding the doctrine that nobody is above the law in the United States. It's, it's right. the and, only tool we have. Right. I think that I think that's right. And, and this is a question for people who know a lot more about the law than I do. But I think it's an interesting one, and I'll just throw it out there. So to go to what Ryan just said, um, a lot of the pushback that I've gotten on this argument is is along the lines of, oh well, any judge who's who's not going to uphold these subpoenas outside of the impeachment inquiry is probably operating in bad faith. And we'll just do the same in the impeachment context. And if that's the case, then what do we have rule of law? I mean, it, it seems to me that that I, I'm I, I actually I agree with Ryan and 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 with uh, Congressman Raskin on this. I think it would be harder, maybe substantially harder, for a judge in that context to to uh, come up with a bad faith way of not upholding a, a House request for information. In fact, if if and this is the question, right? Does it actually become harder for the judiciary to do that? It seems to me it does. And if you think about it, if if the problem as I understand it, which some legal thinkers say it is, if the problem is that the judiciary is fundamentally political anyway, right, i.e. they operate in bad faith, then wouldn't you think that it would be, uh, it would take its advantages to shoot down the democratic requests when it's easier to do, when it's easier to come up with legal or word games to do so? And wouldn't they be more reluctant to do that when it's harder to do, right? Harder politically to do, if they're acting as pol- you know a political body in a way, um, as as um, as both Raskin and and Ryan said, if if the if if impeachment is the last line of defense against the corrupt president, and the House can't gather um, information to carry out the impeachment, isn't the judge essentially saying that? There is no accountability. There is no line of defense anymore. And, and that seems to me politically untenable. And we know judges do behave politically. Um, well, they, well, they do. Ryan, how do you respond to that? No, I think that that's a great way of analyzing it, not just thinking of judges as applying what they uh, believe is the right legal answer that they're going to derive from first legal principles, but rather that they themselves are ideological or political animals. And in that context, I think everything that Greg just said is right. It's about the the legitimacy and the political um, ability to suggest that the decision is the correct one. And they're in a much more difficult position if indeed we're talking about it in terms of Congress's uh, constitutionally enshrined impeachment power. You know, another way of putting it too is, um, we had a piece published at Just Security by uh, Mike Stern, who was the uh, senior legal counsel to the House, and he one of the points he made as well is, let's say you have a judge. I, I'm, I'm I'm rephrasing it a little bit in a way, reframing it a little bit. Let's say you do have a judge who is political, but in a certain sense of ideo- ideological. They are very pro-executive power. And in most debates or um, disputes between the Congress and the executive, they might side with the executive. 
Well, if they're in an impeachment controversy, it is easier for them to side with Congress because that is such a unique, special situation where Congress's power is at its zenith that they can make a ruling in favor of Congress that does not necessarily carry over to broader implications for their, their, their concerns or their ideological outlook on the executive versus Congress. So once again, another kind of way at this issue, not thinking of judges as pure, you know, purists on the law, but also kind of political ideological animals. And once again, um, it seems to suggest that this is a much stronger hand that Congress will walk into the litigation with. Um, so Greg, you know, there's another dimension of this, which leads me, doesn't lead people you've spoken to, it doesn't lead Rosa, but it leads me to say that we are actually in a constitutional crisis, whether we, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with people challenging the Constitution. It has to do with the fact that the Constitution is fundamentally flawed, or at least fundamentally flawed as we currently interpret it. And, and so we'll just go back to the point that I made before, which is if the uh, Office of Legal Counsel memo on the president not being indictable is, uh, is, is presumed to be true. I don't think it is, but let's pres presume to be true. Uh, and therefore, the only way to hold the president of the United States is accountable is via impeachment. And the only way to convict the president of the United States is via a vote of the Senate of the United States. And the Senate of the United States is elected by virtue of two senators per state, essentially a geographic rather than population allocation of, of power. And um, that tends to give disproportionate power to less populated states. And less populated states tend to be states that lean red, they're less tolerant, they're more conservative, and they're growing to the point that, as Norm Ornstein has pointed out, that by 2030, um, one third of the people in the United States will be electing two thirds of the seats in the Senate, then we are screwed because the uh, at, at least a Republican president of the United States for the foreseeable future cannot be held accountable under any circumstances um, simply because of the, 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 this hurdle of getting past uh, you know, two-thirds majority to convict in the Senate. I mean, it, it well, literally yeah. doesn't work. I mean, it goes back to the fact that the Constitution was created without parties in mind, right? I guess one thing, um, you know, the, all those structural problems are extremely serious and stuff, but I guess one potential way to think about a remedy for that is reform, right? I mean, presumably at some point, Democrats will control everything. <laughs> I don't know when, but, uh, you know, at some point they'll control the Senate and the House and, and the White House. And, and I think, aren't there ways to pass laws that could fix um, that uh, problem in particular of the OLC opinion? One could presumably at least try to legislate a, in a, a way, uh, try to come up with some way to legislate um, against the uh, ability of the um, Justice Department to exempt a sitting president from prosecution, right? Well, you could create a mechanism yeah, I mean, both, that both, way. I mean, both, both, uh, 
Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren have indicated that they would seek to overturn this OLC decision. What do you, what do you think, Ryan? Is there is there a path that doesn't require a constitutional convention? Um, I mean, there are some short uh, sh short steps they could take towards that, I would think, but not necessarily overturn the opinion or the, what the opinion says. Because in a sense, what the opinion is saying is that this is um, rooted in the Constitution, that, I, that it is constitutionally required, or for, let's put it this way, it's constitutionally forbidden uh, for uh, federal prosecutors to indict a sitting president. Um, so that's that's uh, <laughs> that's part of the tough piece of this. Um, you could definitely do something which is now proposed legislation like tolling the statute of limitations so that if there's any uh, indication that the president has committed a crime, uh, either right before or before coming into office or during office, that their time in office, that the statute of limitations wouldn't run and therefore they would be immediately indictable upon stepping down. Um, there's also, I guess, something potentially interesting here, which is, you know, something that Mueller said in his statement that is in the report, but it's even more evident in the statement is the following. He was, according to the OLC opinion, forbidden from indicting a sitting, sitting president, but he was not, according to the OLC opinion, forbidden from making a determination that the president had committed a crime and then reporting that determination to the attorney general. That, he said, was based on certain principles of fairness. Right. So there, I think, could be something like, why not have Congress say, and even have a, a you know, the next uh, a, attorney general, maybe Democratic attorney general, say that, that the regulation should change such that any special counsel, for example, shall make a determination and it shall be reported simultaneously to the Congress and to the Attorney General, um, so that we at least have a public statement. Imagine if today we were sitting here with a public statement by Robert Mueller saying that the president, in, according to the special counsel's office, had committed the crime of obstruction. We'd be in a very different universe. The level of political pain that some Republicans in the Senate would suffer from not applying a good faith analysis um, would be higher, at least, so it like ratchets up the political costs. And maybe that's the space in which we could think about legislation changing that or even just a new regulation uh, changing that by an attorney general. Well, we've only we've only got two minutes left here, and uh, and, 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 and I don't want to run over, so I'm going to go and, and conclude this, Greg, with just turning to you on that. One of the things that strikes me about this strikes me when I read Ryan's comparisons, it strikes me when we have discussions like this, is that as as upstanding as Robert Mueller's character is, the character of his response was flawed. Richard Nixon was identified as an unindicted co-conspirator, and that was certainly an option available to Robert Mueller, and I'm not sure what the idea of fairness is that keeps him from doing that. In fact, I would argue that the presumption that no one is above the law suggests that there is an obligation of fairness to be more explicit. And in fact, his whole um, sort of inscrutability on a number of these issues has left a lot of questions and opened the door in this era of disinformation 
for the president and his defenders to create out of their whole cloth defenses based on lies or misinterpretation or or kind of willful ignorance and 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 so some blame needs to accrue to Robert Mueller. Well, well interesting. You know, I think one way to think about that is that he was operating from a set of uh, norms that don't exist for, for in, in this time, right? Um, I think it's sort of understandable why he, he chose the, the course he did in, in the name of fairness, but to not be aware that it would be used in such a crudely dishonest fashion seems really kind of almost remarkable. And, and I, I think... You know, one thing you could criticize about his remarks on closing the investigation was the kind of adamant signal that he gave that he won't say another syllable more. That seems like if he's a great institutionalist, as we're all supposed to believe, that that seems really kind of unfair to Congress, right? I mean, Congress should be able to fact find further on this, particularly in the environment that Mueller himself has now had to push back on. And I found that a really kind of astonishing move on his part. I don't see why he would close the door to good faith efforts to further clarify for the American people what he concluded. After all, he, you know, his, his letter objecting to Barr's um, summary said that he was distressed or suggested that he was distressed that the country had been misled. And so for him to essentially draw a hard line against further congressional inquiry designed to um, illuminate um, areas unknowns that were created by his inability to prepare for the level of disinformation that uh, was going to come from Trump and his apparatus seems really pretty irresponsible in certain respects. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I also think that there is a kind of a fantasy that we, we like to project on him to say that, well, he was operating under the standards of another era, you know, that he is a throwback to a more honorable time, except that there never was a more honorable time. Uh, um, good point. <laughs> and that, you know, the the first person to accuse, as I said on the last episode of the podcast, the first, I, because I, this is something I've been working on for my book, the first person to accuse the president of the United States of an impeachable offense um, was Thomas Jefferson accusing George Washington of selling out the country by agreeing to sign the Jay Treaties. The successor to Thomas Jefferson, uh, Edmund Randolph, who was his handpicked successor, was accused of allegiances to a foreign government and forced by Washington to resign because he was too close to the French. Alexander Hamilton accused Thomas Jefferson of being too close um, to the French and, and, and said he had, you know, women, womanish attachment to the French. And of course, Thomas Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr, not only shot and killed Alexander Hamilton, but then sought to set up his own country in one of the great sort of traitorous acts in the history of the United States. And these were the founders who we sort of view as being carved out of marble. There was that that was not a nice time. And there was plenty of sex scandal, rumor and attacks to go back then. That's why impeachment was put into the Constitution 
there were real bad people doing bad things and they were distrustful of the impulses of men and and that's why it was put in there they knew it and and so we 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 we, we should not delude ourselves um that there is some sort of higher standard that could somehow be applied if we pull the right page out of here um in any event gentlemen it was good to have you here i'm very sorry katie I uh, did not join us. I'm sure she will join us in the future. I know she was busy on a work matter. I'm also sorry because we don't do manals here, and I will have to make up for this by doing a couple more shows um, that are all female participants because I want to make sure that there is always balance in, in the participants in these shows. Um, and so I promise that that's something that will happen in the future. In the meantime, Greg, thanks very much, and I hope you can come back again sometime soon. Sure. Uh, Ryan, thanks very much, and, and I trust I will see you again next week. Uh, and to all of you out there who like this and want to hear more, go to uh, thedsrnetwork.com, find our other podcasts, of which there are many, find the other content up there, join, become a member, help support all of this. Uh, more interesting discussions like this to come, including on Monday on the two podcasts. Our guest in the first podcast is going to be Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School. And our guest in the second podcast, which will be the one for later in the week, will be the Washington Post's uh, Beijing bureau chief, Anna Fifield, talking about her great book on Kim um, Jong-un. So join us then. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.